worship service this morning. My name is Pastor Mark, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, lead you in prayer before we start our service this morning. Uh, the service is, uh, concludes today with uh, a formal installation of Brian Dixon as our next pastor, so uh, look for that at the very end. But before we get to that, we will pray, so join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to be able to gather as your church uh, to celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And so, therefore, Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would empower everything that we do this morning and inform everything that we do. And, and let your Holy Spirit, Lord, just fill our hearts this morning uh, with praise and with prayer, thanksgiving. Um, be with Sam this morning as he comes to share uh, a passage from Matthew, uh, which, which deals with a, with a difficult subject of judgment. And so, Lord, um, I pray that this would be um, uh, something that would be uh, cause all of us to, to consider even our own salvation, not in a sense of fear that somehow God might remove it from us if we have it, but if we have never uh, placed our faith in you, Lord, in, in the work of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and what he did for us on the cross, I pray that this would be a pivotal moment in our lives that we would uh, fully and finally surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, allow him to completely cleanse us from all of our sin and remove um, uh, the, the, the threat of judgment away from us forever. So thank you again, Lord. We are your church, uh, but it was not our idea uh, to build this church. It was your idea. Uh, you came, Lord Jesus, to uh, establish your church, and you did that a long time ago. And you promised that even the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against her. And so that is the only reason that we still can gather as your church, because your mission has not yet been completed. And so thank you, Father, and I just pray that uh, your name would be glorified this morning and your uh, name would be lifted up in praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to finish that chapter today. I'm going to begin in verse 31 because we have a lot to cover and I want to get right to work. So Matthew, first book in the New Testament, not the first book written, but verse 31 of chapter 25 says this to the end. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal 
fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's word. And this is the end. Jesus is talking about the end, and this is the end, if you will, the last sermon in our study of Matthew until March. Last sermon in a six-part kind of series on the end where Jesus has been talking about and answering two questions about when the uh, Jewish age, or really the destruction of the temple, would come to an end and when the age itself, when all the world would come to an end. And the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we need to understand uh, as we approach it, is a book that was written by a teacher. It is organized. Matthew is a tax collector. He is, he is, has an organized mind, if you will, and the book, like no other, is organized in such a way to be memorable and easy to instruct. It was one of the first books that the early church had and used uh, in many ways like a catechism. And it was designed, I believe, by Matthew this way, a teacher to raise up teachers who would teach it, not just me. You are not just here to listen, to learn, and then go about your life. You are here to be equipped so that you can teach the same things. In fact, the final words of this Gospel, of which we will address uh, around Easter, were the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples, baptize them. And then he said, the much ignored aspect of the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. We are called to be teachers. Disciple makers who make disciples, who teach what Jesus commanded, and includes things like judgment and end times. It's not just for the professionals or the scholars to figure out. We are all here. You are all here to do more than just get fed fat. We are here to learn to feed so that others might experience the truth of God. So that's a challenge to you. And according to chapter 25 here, as we've gone through these three different stories about His second coming, Jesus has said, look, be ready for the end that's coming. And He said, be working until the end, which is going to include teaching, but many other things as well. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes, as I said, the end of the age to, through a couple different parables. One with ten virgins, one with uh, three servants and different talents, and then we have this kind of extended metaphor about goats and sheep. And in each of these three kind of word pictures, Jesus is identified in a kind of a different role. One, he is um, the bridegroom. One, he is pictured as a master who's entrusting his stuff to servants. And this last one is he's a king. 
And in all three of these roles, when the bridegroom or when the master or when the king returns and comes upon the scene after a long delay, which is what we're in right now. So these parables are addressing the time period between Jesus' ascension to heaven and His second coming, where we live and breathe and move us. Every time the bridegroom or the master or the king returns, he brings with him cosmic judgment. And he engages in it personally, which it's unlikely that Jesus as judge is the first image that comes to mind for anyone, believer or not. We don't talk often about Jesus as judge. Largely because we think of Him before the cross. And even Jesus Himself said that I, wasn't a, I didn't come to judge. A passage in Hebrews says it this way in chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. It says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. In other words, Jesus' second coming is going to be completely different than His first coming. But we need to be thinking about and and having the second coming, of which is a topic that doesn't come up very often, it seems, in the church. I don't remember apart from Matthew 24 and 25, how often, and I don't think it's much, that I've preached on the return of Jesus. And I emphasized that several weeks ago. Do we talk about that? Do we think about that? Is that on the forefront of our mind? Is that a guiding truth in our lives? And if it was, how, what impact would that make? His second coming is going to be completely different than His first. And His second coming is going to include judgment. Now, We need to understand that these parables, what we learn in chapter 25, are not intended to be used to scare non-believers into heaven. Just give you quick advice, that's not possible. No one will be scared into heaven. No. I believe these are given to believers in order to prepare us for the end that is coming. We're to challenge us to perceive and to live differently in order to really reorient our misplaced hopes. Where we put hope in the wrong thing, the wrong Savior, the wrong end to all things. Jesus is alive. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus is reigning right now, so don't freak out. Jesus is returning, and upon His return, He is going to set all things right once and for all. Those should be some guiding truths in our lives. Now, in this passage, He's going to speak very plainly, even more so than the first two parables that we read, about His second coming. He says in verse 31, Describing how different it's going to be. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Up until this point, it's talked about the Son of Man coming in the clouds, which is 
really was reference to the wrath and the destruction that Rome brought upon the temple in A.D. 70. This is different. This is the literal return. Jesus coming to the earth. And we learn several things through that one verse. First, that the Son of Man is going to come on a day. There is a day where this will all end. There is a day in time and space, not just a day, an era, no, a day. Maybe a Thursday, maybe a Wednesday, maybe at 7, maybe at 9, I don't know, but there will be a time in the future where Jesus arrives and there will be no mistaking that He has arrived. No one will go, I wonder if Jesus is here. Everyone will know that Jesus is has arrived. He will bring the end. And that tells us that time is not cyclical, it's linear, and there's an end to it. He's going to come. And the second thing that we learned just from this one verse is that the Son of Man is going to come very differently than He did the first time. It says He's going to come in His glory. Now I hope we understand that Jesus, as the Galilean carpenter from Nazareth, the armpit, of Galilee did not show up in his full glory. That was one of the major reasons people rejected him. Like, this guy from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Isaiah 53 told us that no one's going to be impressed with the Savior. He will not be good looking. He will not be perfectly fit. He will not be super tall or super short, whatever your fancy is. He will not make perfect tables. They will be a little crooked. He will not be the best ball player. Like He is nothing about him is going to be impressive. His glory will be veiled. But not the second time. The second time Jesus comes, he will be revealed in all of his greatness, in all of his beauty, in all of his power, in all of his majesty as king, and everyone will see him. Believer, non-believer, he will be known, and people will go, there's Jesus. And the third thing it says is that he's going to arrive with his angels. Right? He's not walking in with his 12 goofy disciples. Right? He is coming with his angels. And I know many of us have really messed up views of angels, like bing, bing, little, like pretty angels on cloud cars, precious moment angels, whatever. Like, that's not angels. Okay? He is coming with his army, an army of spiritual beings that are warriors. Not just, hey, look it, Jesus is coming with his blue sash and all these fluffy little teeny angels flying around his head. No! You're going to be like, holy tens of thousands, like a general leading the army, he's going to come and people are going to know he is here for a reason. He is on mission. This is the king. I'm going to be on my knees whether I have recognized him or not. And then it says that he is going to sit on his glorious throne. He is not coming like he did before. He is coming to rule 
He is coming to reign and He's coming to judge as King, to bring the fullness of His kingdom into place. It's like what they would do, they'd walk onto the battlefield armies, and when they had conquered, they'd bring up the throne and they'd set it there, and the King would sit down on His throne and He would judge. And everyone is going to see that, and everyone's not going to go, well, why are you sitting down? You tired? Like, what's going on? They're, they're going to know court's in session. The judge has just walked in. The bailiff has announced that he is here. And everyone is going to revere the king. And Jesus intends to set all things right. And to take what are conquered enemies right now, sin, Satan, and death, and fully vanquish them. Completely remove them. To bring, if you will, full restoration. To make, as he says in the book of Revelation, all things new by removing all things old. That is what it looks like when the king returns. It will be impressive. It will be glorious. It will be bold. It will be seen by everyone. There will be no mistaking what's going on. He's coming in a different way. And when he comes, we see that he comes to separate. As I said, we don't like to speak of Jesus as judge. We only like to talk about pre-cross Jesus. Pre-cross Jesus is the Jesus that walked around meek and mild. Pre-cross Jesus is the Jesus that served and loved and, and hung out with sinners and all these things. And, and we love that Jesus. We love to talk about the Jesus and we should. But he is not coming a second time as a sacrifice for sin. As a servant to the sinner. He is coming to bring those for whom he has already saved. Who he has already redeemed into the fullness of his kingdom. He is not even coming to judge sin. Which may sound like I'm contradicting myself. What I mean is, he's not coming to figure out who are His and who are not. He's coming to separate what already is. John 3.16 You'll see it at the Seahawks games. God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse. Hold signs for that verse. You should read 17 and 18. 17 and 18 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, speaking of His first coming, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, speaking of His first coming. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned or judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is coming on that day, to separate quite plainly those who have believed in Him and received His love and those who have rejected Him. There is no middle category. And this is for all people. He will separate everyone who has ever lived on that day. It says that before Him are gathered all the nations. On the day of judgment, Everyone who was ever born from every generation, from every nationality, from every walk of life, 
believe it or not, will be gathered. At this point, estimates are that there have been 107 billion people who have ever lived on the face of the planet. So at least there will be 107 billion people that gather before the king and will be separated. It says, before him, he will gather all the nations and he'll separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It says that Jesus, like a shepherd, is going to separate people into two groups. It's going to be sheep, and they will be on his right. Then there will be goats, and they will be put on his left. Now, as I've said, there is no middle category. There's sheep, goats, and no, what are you? Now, sheep and goats, um, practically speaking, there's absolutely no difference in value of them, practically speaking, fleshly speaking. It's not like, oh, well, I'm a sheep. Oh, I'm a goat. I'm bad. No. Sheep and goats are both ugly. Maybe when they're younger, they're not, right? Really cute, but it's like dogs. They get ugly, right? So sheep, ugly. Goats, ugly. Sheep, stinky. Goats, stinky. Sheep, unruly. Goats, unruly. There's certainly symbolism there, but the emphasis is not that, oh, i got to be a sheep or i got to be a goat. The emphasis is these are distinctly different. And people are not weighed in the end. I kind of regret saying weighed because I, I really like alliteration. I needed W's, weight, work, weighed. You'll see I do that a lot because I'm a weird English teacher like that. But in reality, we're literally speaking, they're not weighed. There's no scale. There's no resume of works that's like, well, clearly you're a sheep because... Sheep only weigh a certain amount, and goats, no, that's not how it works. They are separated according to what is in their hearts, what they characteristically are by nature. According to Jesus in John chapter 12, there's not some new question to answer. They arrive as sheep or goats. There's no figuring out. They are what they are at final judgment. It's not like, okay, here's your Bible test. Let's see if you're sheep. All right? It's not the way it works. Jesus says in John 12, verse 47, if anyone, this is, again, prior to his death, prior to his resurrection, at his first coming, he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. In other words, our response, whether we received and obeyed Jesus' word prior to the end, that's it. There's no one more question. What do you think about Jesus? That's been determined. When you enter into the other life, you are a sheep or goat. You are judged, if you will, weighed, if you want to use that word, based off of not just amount of knowledge, but from what you heard, what did you do with what you knew? 
We are not afforded all the same opportunities. We're not growing up in the same families, in the same parts of the world, even hearing the same things. But we all hear a pile of information, knowledge, truth. And the question is, what did you do with what you knew? There's a lot of things I think we can learn from the separation. Sheep and goats, right and left, shepherd and king. If you look at sheep and goats, it's important to understand kind of the historical biblical context of this. The sheep and goats, those are chosen. Jesus didn't say, hey, let's go with uh, platypuses and giraffes. Okay, We didn't see platypuses and giraffes except maybe in creation. The sheep and the goats were very important to the law of Moses in two ways. First, you may have heard of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was an annual day where the priest would atone for the sins of all of Israel. So the priest would enter into uh, the tabernacle, or the temple, and he'd go into the holy place. And in the holy place, he would prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice and atonement for the sins. And before entering the Holy of Holies, the priest would lay his hands on a goat and he would proclaim or confess the sins of Israel upon this goat. Lay it upon the goat and the goat would be sent into the wilderness, into the uninhabited regions, away from everyone. And the goat would symbolically bear the sins of the people and take them away from the people. Obviously pointing to the cross. That's the goat. Put that on the shelf for a second. Then you have this annual yearly celebration of the Passover. And the Passover was the celebration of God's protection when they came out of Egypt. The tenth plague was promised or proclaimed, and that would kill the firstborn of every animal, every family, and he told the Israelites, but you can be saved. If you kill a particular lamb, and you pour its blood upon the door and the home that you are celebrating, if you will, or you're living, then I will pass over you and you will be saved. And so this sheep was a substitute for the sins of the people. The blood covered them so they would not be killed while all others were for their sin. So you have the goat and the sheep. John the Baptist called Jesus as he's walking by. His disciples are with him. That's John the Baptist before Jesus really started on his ministry fully. And he said, look, there goes the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world, and these disciples immediately think of Passover and the atoning for their sins. So in judgment, there are two groups of people. There are goats and there are sheep. And if we just take what Scripture's Old Testament lens teaches us, we see that these two types of people are those who on the left burden their own sins. They carry their own sins. They are absorbing their own sins. And those for whom sins have been burdened by the Lamb of God, Jesus. 
And you have those on the right and those on the left. As I said, all nations are gathered, all believers, all non-believers, all people, and they're all identified as either a sheep or goat, all on the right or on the left. And the distinction between those two is the presence of sin. And the presence of sin is directly related to one's relationship with Jesus. Those who have their sins covered by the blood of the Lamb are on the right, and the right hand is the favored hand. That is the hand of favor, biblically. Those on the left still have their sins. They're burdening their sins, and that is obviously the opposite, not the hand of favor. So there are two types of people in judgment. Those to whom, on the right, God has shown favor. He has shown mercy. He has shown undeserved grace. And those on His left hand, whom He has not shown mercy, but He has shown deserved judgment. Now, again, those who are sheep deserve judgment. They all deserve judgment. But God has chosen to show favor and grace to them. Now, if you don't like that, take it up with Jesus. Because that's what is written. And I know that makes us uncomfortable, but it should direct us not towards me, not towards different theological positions, but towards God. Say, who is this God that I can't comprehend? Who is this God? And make sure you're asking, who is this God that shows mercy and does this smite me as I stand right now for the sins that I've committed? And then you have the shepherd and the judge. And this is hugely important. In the end, Jesus is identified. He's been bridegroom. He's been master. Now he is shepherd and king. Shepherd and judge. And all too often, we like one or the other. We never want to characterize the Son of God or God basically completely. We do it very incompletely. We say He is either holy or He is either loving. And that's how Satan works with us. He wants us to believe that either God is not holy and He doesn't really care or He's not loving and you're too sinful. He's either holy or He's loving. When the Bible says that God is a Father, according to how Jesus taught His disciples to pray, who has a hallowed name, a holy name, he is a Father, and He is holy. The Spirit is said to be grieved, and yet the Spirit is convicting sin. Grieved by sin and convicting people of sin. The Son is both a lion and He is a lamb. The Son is both a shepherd and He is a judge. The cross reveals that God loves the sinner. And yet he hates the sinner and sin. And he does it at the same time. He is both just and the justifier. And so there are two types of people of judgment. Those who believe God is holy or loving, depending on how I feel. Or those who accept him as holy and loving always. He is always holy and he is always loving. He is always just and he is always gracious. But there is 
without mistake, a final judgment at the end, and that is not the judgment of men, which should bring us comfort. I was recently on a superior court case, uh, one of those cases that you hope you never get. I was on jury duty for a week. Uh, it was a case about children, and you can imagine uh, how horrible it was to hear, um, and I'm sure you can imagine it. It's still difficult for me to even think of some of the testimony that I had to hear. But as I sat there looking at a man whose fate I had to judge along with 12 or 13 other, 11 other people. I sat on a case where uh, for one week, multiple hours a day, I was going to judge the guilt or innocence of a man and dictate the next 20 plus years of his life. And there was a weight to that. People who talk about this idea, of, we hear it often, don't judge, don't judge. I don't want to judge. I didn't want to judge there. We sat and deliberated for a week and argued and talked, and it was difficult because you have the weight of, I don't know. I don't know everything. I can't see this guy's heart. I don't know the secret conversations he's had. I don't know the thoughts he's had. I don't even know all the events. The court system is so complex, we later found out all the evidence they couldn't give us. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And we found him guilty, convicted. And then we had to stand up and say to his face, guilty, individually. And you're like, oh, gosh. With a confidence that's not confident. And then we went back afterwards and the judge came out and said, wow, that was a tough one. I don't know what I would have done. Are you kidding me? You, saw, you see all this all the time. I don't want to judge as an imperfect man, and I don't want to be judged by imperfect men. But praise be to God that His judgment is perfect, and that as He says, He sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So don't for a second think that sheep and goats are evaluated based off the superficial judgment that, ooh, God might get wrong. He knows all. He sees all. Every thought, every deed, every word, past, present, and future before it even happens. He is the perfect judge. There will be no mistakes. Which should bring some of us peace, but some of us fear. Once separated, though, the king begins to speak. He speaks first to the sheep. And in doing so, he gives us very clear evidence or information about, okay, how does someone actually get into heaven? Who gets in? Who gets out? What's the deal? And you have to read it very carefully because we can easily misunderstand or misapply what, what Jesus is saying here. But he says to those on his right, come. Sheep, on my right hand, favored hand, gracious hand, come, be blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. He goes, naked, clothes, thirsty, drink, prisoner visited me, sick. And the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see all these? When were you a prisoner? And the king answers, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So what characterizes the sheep? First, the sheep are the ones that are invited into the presence of Jesus to be blessed by the Father. Two, 
The sheep receive an inheritance that has been prepared from the foundation of the world. Now, the nature of an inheritance, this is key. An inheritance is not something you achieve. It is something that you receive. An inheritance is not something you work for. It's a gift. An inheritance is is not something that, that can be earned. It is freely delivered, usually from a father or parent to family, to sons, daughters, heirs. It's a gift. You just get it by the nature of the family that by grace you got adopted into. It's an inheritance. So he doesn't say, I've prepared the payment for all of your good works. Here's the check. He says, look, you're a son. You get it. It's an inheritance, and I've been waiting to give it to you. I've been building it. It's beautiful. It's awesome. You get it. And for those, a minority of that 107 billion people, I don't know how many, but a minority of those whom Jesus saves, that place, heaven, in the presence of our Lord, enjoying our inheritance, is where we will experience completely unveiled and unhindered delight of the Father's love. This will be a kingdom filled with limitless joy and everlasting satisfaction. And I know that many of us, when we think, what's heaven like? When your son or daughter goes, what's heaven like? Or we in our own mind, we imagine whatever it is that is personal to us. Like, for me, it's a field, and it's just wilderness, and I'm fly fishing forever, right? Or I work on cars. It's a garage where I can just build whatever I want, or art, or whatever, right? It's waterfalls, it's clouds, whatever. Here's what it is. We will live in pure, the purest, perfect contentment that we now desperately search for. Ultimately, that's what people are looking for as they pursue substances, relationships, whatever sin or whatever good thing they make too important. They're looking for contentment. They believe, I get rid of this thing or I get this thing, I will be content. I'm telling you, heaven is a place of contentment. It is a place in the presence of God where we're fully satisfied because we're freely released from our flesh. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no temptation. There'll be no failures. There'll be no bills. There'll be no stress. There'll be no worry. There'll be no, what am I going to eat tomorrow? It'll be awesome. But then Jesus says something that's Difficult, or if we're not careful, we can misapply. He says the sheep are sheep because they love Jesus. He says, come on in, for you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You clothed me on naked, all these things. And the sheep's response is very interesting. It's identical to the goats. They respond to him like, When did we do these things for you? It seems like they're ignorant. Notice they don't say, well, when did we do these things? Because they did do the things. They just didn't realize they were doing them for Jesus. In other words, that wasn't their motivation. 
to try and impress Jesus, to try and obtain His love in some way. They acted out of who they were, who God had transformed them to be, not to try and gain salvation. See, sacrificial service of this kind, love of this kind, is never and is not a means of earning your salvation. It is always the effect of salvation. It is natural. A sheep doesn't know how to not be a sheep. And a heart that knows the love of God in Christ will love others in the name of Christ. Their works don't save them any more than fruit on a tree makes it alive. It is the evidence of life. 1 John 3 says it this way. Verse 16. By this we know love. Here's love defined. That He, Jesus, laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you know that love, and you see someone who needs love, and you refuse to love them, whether it be a stranger, or a prisoner, or someone hungry, or someone thirsty, whatever it is, how can God's love abide in you? How can you be a Christian? Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We clarifies it even more when he speaks to the goats. The goats, unlike the sheep, are cursed and sent away. And they too receive, though, what has been prepared for them. The goats are sent to a different place or sent away because they did not love Jesus by loving that or who was unlovable. And what is emphasized in this parable, if it's a parable, is not the relationship to the people. You catch that? It's not the works. It's not even the relationship to the stranger or those who are hungry. What's emphasized is the relationship to Jesus as revealed by relationships to others. Our love for Jesus, the fact that we know the love of Jesus, that we have the love of Jesus controlling us, is not evidenced mostly by our words. It is evidenced by our love in relationship to others. And those who know the love of the shepherd love others as if they are loving Christ Himself. Even if they don't know or think about what they're doing, it is natural to them. Those who do not know the love of Christ live in the very opposite way, which is a life for themselves. And while certainly goats can perform what men will call good, loving works, they will never, ever, ever do them to honor God or as an act of worship. The Bible is very clear, that which does not proceed from faith is sin. I do not know what their motivations might be, but they are not to honor God. Jesus teaches something very sobering, that the goats are sent away into a place far from the presence of the king, similar to what we saw in Leviticus 16. And 
the imagery that Jesus uses should shock us a little bit. Because we're not used to this kind of imagery from Jesus who talks a lot about forgiveness and love thy neighbor. And then, in speaking about this place where the goats are sent, he has described it in chapter 25 as a place where the first guy who was sent to it was cut into pieces before he went to be with the hypocrites. Then he says it is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he says it is a place of outer darkness. And now he says it is a place of eternal punishment and fire prepared for devil and demons. And we have this weird thing in culture where whenever they picture hell, it's like this picture where the devil's kind of running the show. Like, yeah, you serve me. Like, ha, 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 laughing. I'll tell you right now, the devil ain't going to be laughing. The devil is one being tortured. The hell is not a place where the greatest enemy of God rules. It is a place where he is tormented along with all the other enemies of God. And for the majority of people in our world, this, this should stir us. If you are in Christ, the grace you have been shown should humble you and take you to your knees because it is not shown to the majority of the 107 billion people that have ever been born. If you are in Christ and you know the love of Christ, I have no idea why that is the case for you and not for someone else. It's the grace of God. And for most people, hell will be the final destination and it is the polar opposite of the eternal reward and the joy of presence of the king. Hell is a place of unquenchable agony characterized by, I believe, a perpetual desire for satisfaction and contentment without any hope of obtaining it. It is like being in a perpetual state of addiction where you hate and love the thing you're addicted to all at the same time. Jesus describes that place as eternal fire and whether or not there's fire there and smoke, I have no idea. That's kind of uncertain. What is certain is that it is the place of God's judgment. But we don't like the idea of hell. No one does. We believe just naturally it kind of puts God in a bad light. And so very briefly I wanted to say maybe there's a goodness to hell, which might sound strange. But people will say hell is not helpful. Talking about hell is not helpful. Thinking about hell is not helpful. Can we just ignore that? And I will say, hell proves quite simply that what we do and why we do it matters in this life. And hell, I believe, actually brings meaning to life. That there is a judgment brings meaning to this life. In listening to Tim Keller reference Arthur Miller, who was a great great playwright whose plays I taught as an English teacher. He wrote several plays, uh, Crucible, Death of a Salesman. He also wrote one called After the Fall, and he pictured this guy was struggling with the idea of judgment, and he pictured judgment, and what if there was no judge on the seat, and he said it would be a place of endless litigation. And a place of endless litigation without actually coming to conclusion is called despair and meaningless where you argue over what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, and no one ever has a final say. You never really know. 
But hell is helpful in that it does give us meaning in this life. People will say hell is not fair. It proves God's not fair. And I say, praise God He's not fair and doesn't give us what we deserve. And hell shows us exactly what anyone and everyone deserves. And people say hell is not right. It's not just. And I would say that hell proves that God is ultimately and cosmically just. And that the fact that there is a final vindication for all the wrongs that are done, whether it be to me or to others, knowing that, being guided by the fact that there is a final judgment, there is a judge who knows everything and will make all things right, even if I can't, helps me, gives me courage to not take justice into my own hands. If I don't think there's a final justice and a final judge, then I'm going to take it in my own hands and judge whoever I can if they hurt me. But knowing there's a hell, knowing there's a judgment, actually prevents me from doing that. And again, lastly, people say hell's not loving. A loving God would not have hell. And I would remind ourselves that the law, Jesus said, was summarized by two commandments, one being greater than the other. One was to love God, the other was to love others. Number one was to love God. What hell proves more than anything is that God loves His holiness. He loves His holiness even before He loves my happiness because that's not the true joy He intends for me. He loves His holiness and the cross proves that He loves me. But there is one, and we must never forget, who has endured that hell, that separation, that pain, that anguish, so we didn't have to. See, the final judgment, the idea of the judgment, should generate fear in those who believe they're going to be saved by what they do. But for those who believe that they could never stand in judgment based on their works. For those who believe that I got nothing to offer you but my sin. For those who truly understand how bad they are and how dark they are, and they say, Jesus, you covered me. I undeservably plead for your mercy, and you give it to me freely in love. Those who have received that love, that covering, they don't live in fear anymore. They have a peace. Peace knowing that someone has already stood in their judgment place and when this day of judgment comes, they can receive it because it means they are entering into the fullness of His kingdom and they are not going to ever be judged again. And the question is, which are you? And there's a really easy way to figure it out. If you can for a second imagine standing before the judgment seat, where everything is known, every thought, every action, every word. And the Lord, though I don't think you'll actually ask this question, but bear with me. He speaks to you and He inquires, why should you enter into my kingdom? Why should you enter into my joy? Why should I let you into heaven? In the quietness of your own home or in that private place, where does your mind go? 
When you're asked that question, why should you get into heaven? Why should I let you in? Where does your mind automatically go? Does it go to what you have done? Does it go to what you have not done? Does it go to your achievements? Does your mind naturally go to your failures? Or is the only word that comes up Jesus? What Jesus has done. What Jesus has achieved. Because how you answer that question is going to govern how you live now with fear of peace and how you live then in his joy or apart from him. Close with this verse out of 1 John. I believe he says it best. By this, chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, right? There's a confession. It's the confession of the believer that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever confesses that God abides in Him and He in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. And by this, His love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. I can have confidence if I truly abide in the love, if I know the love, if I believe the love, if I confess the love of Jesus, the love that He says, I have for you, Sam. I can have confidence. I don't have to fear the day of judgment. I can be excited for it. I can live in peace. Why? It says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love, which is the love of Christ, casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Punishment's been taken. I don't have to live wondering if Jesus is going to show up and go, screwed up, should have been here. He already knows I should have been here. And he says, I already knew he fell short. I already knew it, paid for it. But you didn't know this. Oh, I knew that. I never told anybody this. You didn't have to tell anybody. I know it all. I don't have to fear when the return of Jesus comes and the judgment that comes with Him that there will be punishment. My punishment has been taken through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. But if anyone says, I love God, if you say, I know the love of God, I believe the love of God, I confess the love of God, and hates his brother, says he is a liar. You're a liar. I don't doesn't matter how much you say you love Jesus. Doesn't matter how much you say Jesus loves you. If you hate your brother, you're a liar. You do not know the love of God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so this is the commandment, right? Matthew full sicker a circle. I'm a teacher. Go, baptize, and teach what Jesus commanded. Okay? And this commandment, John says, we have from Him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John says that's a command of Jesus, and we will teach that as such. And now you're held accountable to it. If you say you know the love, 
You are a sheep, and it will not be difficult for you. It will be your desire, even if it is difficult. It's my hope that as we have spent time in the end times here, that we have gotten some better understanding. I realize I can't address everything, but my hope is that you have a better understanding of, of what Jesus did in AD 70 and the tribulation and, and all those things, and including final judgment. But I'd like to read as I end with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, an awesome pastor and theologian who has passed away about how if you are to teach others, if you are to study more about these things, how we ought to approach it. He says this, when we talk about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a right way and a wrong way to study this doctrine. If you want to be sure you're doing it the right way, here's the test. If your study of it humbles you, your study's right. But if it inflates you or inflames your mind and your passion, you're studying it in a wrong way. If the study of it leads you to go down on your knees and worship and adore and praise Him, it's the right way. But if studying His second coming and His final judgment gives you a sense of self-satisfaction, that you've understood it, dare I say deserve it, then it's utterly and absolutely wrong. If your study makes you realize that time is short and you must be up and doing, that you must purify yourself and prepare yourself for the end, then you are studying the right way, but if it is something purely intellectual that doesn't affect your spirit and your way of living, then you can be certain your whole approach is wrong. And by grace, I pray God gives us the understanding and the humility to approach this glorious truth in the right way. Communion is the reminder that Jesus has paid the price, that the blood has covered our sin for those who put their faith in Him, and it's also a reminder that these are eternal feasts to have together. And I pray we will keep His second coming in the forefront of our mind and let it change us, not just who we are, but how we live. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You praising You for Your goodness, praising You for Your mercy, praising You even for Your judgment. You are both a loving and a just God, Father. I pray we will never divide those two things. For on Your cross, we see what you think about sin, and what you think about us. I pray, Father, for those who are here, if they have experienced the love of Jesus, if they know the love of Jesus, if they have confessed the love of Jesus, that they will live that love and share that love and teach that love and bring that love to those who are in their family, those who are their friends, those who are their neighbors, those who are complete strangers. That you will so move in them to know the love that they will overflow from their heart. And for those who don't know your love yet, Lord, for those who will feel the full weight of judgment when you come, I pray you will put the fear of God in their hearts and you will bring them to their knees as they see that they could never stand in judgment for the goodness that they've done. That it will never be good enough but Jesus has paid it all for them. And if they put their faith in Him, they will be saved.
It is in the name of Jesus we pray, who we pray returns quickly. Amen.